open in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 15. Second Samuel chapter 15. And Lord, we ask now that by your great grace, you would give us ears to hear all that your spirit is saying to the church. Because ah, without us, you won't. But without you, we can't. So grace, grace, Lord, speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, we looked at those first six verses where Absalom is building a reputation. He's got a whole entourage of soldiers and chariots and cruising around in this royal procession, making himself appear as a celebrity. And, of course, he was an amazing, good-looking guy with this thick, blowing, flowing hair. And um, he was being diligent. He had a plan, and and he was rising up early. That takes diligence. And, and he would go, and all day long, it's a hard thing to sit in the city gate. But putting himself, I don't think he was asked to be there. This was a position where the leaders would be. So if somebody were to come into town, when we go to Israel, we actually show you this in, in some of the ancient sites where they actually, you got to go through sort of a maze, and there's these special seats built into the wall that only the leaders could set in so people coming through could uh, get counsel or or help uh, resolve a conflict or whatever and Absalom raised himself up put himself there but he was doing something a little bit different when he would see somebody coming that maybe had a little bit of prestige with him he would run and grab them and take them aside and say, what's your situation? And then as soon as they would tell him, oh my goodness, that should be corrected. But, you know, there's really nobody of power out here that could really answer your question. You know, the king, he's supposed to be the judge, but, you know, he hides himself away. Now, man, if only there was a right kind of judge. Now, understand, that's saying king, even though he's not using the word king, He's saying king because they were synonymous. The, the Supreme Court judge was the king, and the king was the Supreme Court judge. And so in essence, he's very cleverly not to, you know, if he were to go to court and law, he would still be innocent. He's not crossing the line, although it's very, very clear what he's doing. And, of course, the people would bow down because he's so good-looking, and he's the king's son, and he would pick him up and give him a big hug and give him a kiss and, and say, oh, we're brothers, we're equal. And, and he did this, as we're going to see in just a minute. It appears for four years, and he stole, it says in verse 6, he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Everybody was talking about Absalom, I got to see him, and he touched me, and hugged me, and kissed me, and, and he listened to me, and he was so approachable, and so humble, and man, he, you know, he, he's, he's creating this image of, of user-friendly, and in and, and reality, it's, it's all a part of the plan to draw people away from their loyalty to David, to him, and in essence, he was, he was, creating a spirit of discontentment. David is not who he should be. David is not being the king, the judge. And you can look in many areas, he's not being the kind of king you deserve. Now, I just need to stop and say, all of Absalom's accusations were correct. A matter of fact, if you really wanted to say some bad stuff about David, remember adultery and murder and all kinds of things. I mean, he didn't get the, the real bad stuff out, but what he did accuse David of, David was guilty. But understand, in his mind, therefore David should be taken off the throne as king, and I should be the king. So even though God may have correction for David, even though David's not right and, and not, you know, at the top of his game, and, and, and we know that he also dealt in some sin and so forth, in, in no way was God, who alone, who's very sovereignly and very sacredly 
says, all powers that exist, I put them in place. Directly or indirectly, nobody's in any place of power that I myself don't personally, in a very sacred and special way, see myself alone as controlling that area with man. And um, you can study through the whole Bible, whether it's Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon or Moses or Daniel or whoever, God raises up some of the most unexpected people and God brings down some people you think that could never be brought down, but he does it in an instant, in a simple way. And so Paul warns the New Testament church about this kind of spirit, this spirit that these guys who, who are right in what they're saying and they're, they're creating a, a divisive spirit of discontentment, Paul says, mark these guys. I, I for three years, wept. I, for three years, warned you that the moment I leave from outside the church, they're going to come. But let me tell you what else. From inside the church, they're there. They're waiting. As soon as they see a weakened moment, as soon as they see a little crack in the wall, they are going to do everything they can to come in and they're going to try to draw people after themselves. You see, this is the key. If Absalom said, hey, things aren't right. Hey, Dad, you know what? People need you. Hey, you know, let's get a group of guys. Hey, Dad, you know, maybe we should change things up a little bit here. But that wasn't it. The, the point was is that David needs to be down and he needs to be up. You see, that's... that's his answer. And so even though it may seem sincere in his own heart, it's very much uh, a selfish motive that he has. And Paul says, watch these kind of guys. There's wolves and they're speaking perverted things. They're taking the truth, but twisting it to, to have the outcome they want. Paul tells Timothy, especially in the last days, he says these kind of Evil men, these kind of imposters, it's going to keep getting worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's interesting that in Hebrews it says, in the last days, one of the things we're going to see with the church is, is people not coming. And he says, don't forsake the gathering of the, of the church, especially as you see the day of the Lord drawing near. But I think a big part of it is, again, it's the church is uniquely attacked in the last days. 1 Timothy 4 says there's all kinds of doctrines of demons that are going to cause many to depart from the faith. But I also think there's just going to be this overwhelming spirit of division because love is growing cold. I think there are a lot of other godly characteristics that bind us together, such as submission and loyalty and, and just a heart of humility towards one another. That leaves the church, and the church becomes a, a place that's a war zone rather than a, a refuge, and, and there's nothing we can do about it. Satan is always going to try to create the church to be a war zone and not a place for refuge. And you just got to remember, guys, a refuge is heaven. It's not on this earth. And often the battleground, Satan, no dummy, he knows where to put all the demons, and they're right at your front door when you're trying to get to church today and in the car. And afterwards, he's going to beat you up for coming until you eventually go, man, when I don't go to church, things are more peaceful. When I do go to church, it's rougher. Uh, you know, yeah, there's a, there's a price to pay to obey God in, in every area. You know, at, at first glance, I, I think that Absalom believed he was right. He was righteous. He was, he was hearing God and doing the right thing. And he had a huge amount of people in agreement with him. But it was the work of the flesh. It was from the pit of hell. In Galatians 5, you know, we often know the works of the flesh are adultery and fornication and so forth. But notice in Galatians 5 verse 20, it says one of the works of the flesh is contentions, jealousies, selfish ambitions, dissensions, rivalries. And again, he makes it clear, these people who practice these things have disqualified themselves to inherit the kingdom of God. And, and so 
as, it's not, I'm just saying, it's not always so obvious. Because, you know, these guys, they, they have this spirit of righteousness. They look as angels of light. And they're saying so many things that are correct. And, and man, you know, that maybe you're right. And, and, and so it's not so obvious. I mean, there's some people that are never going to discern it. And unless, even if they wore a big giant sign that says, I am a division maker. <laughs> I am a, I'm a disgruntled person bringing contention. I, I still don't think they would think that person's that way. But yet, you just simply ask yourself, did they divide? Did they draw people after themselves? Did they raise themselves up in leadership? And these are the things that are just the facts. And even though it's hard to discern it, it is the work of the flesh. And, and you know, for all of us, we just sort of need to get washed in the work in this area. And, and the Lord is, is rather uh, extreme, saying, guys, it may not look like it at times, but I have everything in control. There's not one hair on your head that I don't know about. There's not one sparrow that falls to the ground that, that I don't know about. How much more people in leadership, whether that's a mom and a dad in a home or a, a guy who's the head of a business or the pastor of a church or the governor or the king, there's not any place in authority that I don't have in control. And if they are in power, it's because I'm allowing it. And the day that I don't want it, I will undo it. But until that happens, tread softly. Because this is an area that the devil is trying to get in to, to cause discontent. You, you know, again, we often say, well, you know, as we read through this chapter, well, David did embitter Absalom by not doing something when Ammon raped his sister and then later Absalom killed him in justice and righteousness. And, and so he sort of was a bad dad and, and he was a bad king and not bringing justice when he should have. And you, you know what, guys? It's all true. Every one of us offend a lot of people to the point that they should be bitter. <laughs> but they still can't be. I mean, David, if anybody was put in a situation to be bitter, David was in an incubator <laughs> to be bitter. Saul chased this guy, took his wife away, gave him to another guy to marry, tried to kill David's family, kept David on the run for years. Over and over, David gave Saul's life, and he kept trying to kill him. And, and, and if you were to say, man, well, you know, of course, David's bitter. Saul, the way he treated David, no wonder. You say, man, that's absolutely right. But David wasn't, was he? That's what we learned, is that even though if anybody on this earth should have ever been bitter, it should have been David, but he wasn't. When Saul died, he grieved. He sang songs of praise to him. He took Saul's kids and grandkids and brought them to his table to eat as a, as a king's kid. Gave all the lands of Saul back to his kids. So the fact is, is that if, if you're thinking I have a reason to be bitter, yes, you do. But understand it's a poison, and you can't drink the poison. I, I remember when I was a kid, I was standing in line and waiting to go in the classroom, and my cousin Timmy came up behind me and just punched me in the stomach. I was not looking for it. I was 13, and I fell on the ground. Honestly, I was dying. I thought I was going to die. I couldn't breathe, and... and he, this guy just had no mercy, you know. He's looking at me, and he's looking down like, and I'm like, I, I, I can't breathe. And he says, you better start or you're going to die. And he walks on in the classroom. And it's like, I can't help but to be bitter. You better stop. <laughs> Are you going to die? You, you, you know what? I, I, I understand. It's a wrestling match just like all the other areas of our flesh, probably every day of our life till the day we die. I had a young man a couple weeks ago ask me, 
you know, Brian, what's, what's the age you get when you stop lusting all the time? <laughs> the age of you're dead? <laughs> it's, it's a battle every day. It, it, it's never going away. And, and, and this is the thing. Yes, everybody has a right to be bitter. None of us can be or we will die. And look at Romans 13. I don't have time to go into all these passages. I put a lot of them here uh, for you to study on your own. But in, in Romans 13, it says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is, listen, no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed, ordained by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For the rulers are not the terror to the good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good. You will have praise from the same. For he is God's ministers to you for good. But if you do evil and are afraid, he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but because of conscience sake. You say, well, doesn't that depend? He's talking about the Roman government, guys. <laughs> he's talking about a wicked government here. And he's telling Christians, you know what? Every God's allowed it. Submit to them. Be quiet. And uh, in, in 1 Timothy 2, he, he says, get the church praying and every type of prayer. Don't stop. And the first thing on the list, for kings. In 1 Timothy 2, 2, get them praying for the kings and all who are in authority so that you lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and reverence. In 1 Peter 2, 13, he says, Submit yourself to every ordinance of man. Why? For the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to the governors. And he goes on and he ends in verse 17 by saying, Honor people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. And it doesn't sound like it's saying honor a good king, <laughs> honor a fair king, honor a godly king, honor a righteous king. It just says honor the king, right? And uh, boy, there's so many other verses on this, but the bottom line, the right heart in 1 Peter 5 says, submit one to another, be clothed in humility. God resists the proud, but gives Grace the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that me may exalt you in due time. So understand, guys, the spirit of not submission, no matter how justified it may seem, is a creation from the pit of hell. Remember a guy by the name of Lucifer the Bible tells us about? The archangel in heaven? No sin, no evil, just God himself in all purity. And what happens there? Lucifer begins to find a critical spirit towards God. He doesn't say, I should be above God, but I should at least be equal with God. And you think, this guy, this guy is an idiot. Nobody's going to listen to him. We discover in Revelation one-third of the angels sided with Lucifer and fought against God. And to this day, their demonic influences is on the earth. So the Proverbs 6 says there's six things God hates. Hold it. There's a seventh one, he says, that's beyond God hating it. It's more than hatred. It's an abomination, hatred. What is that seventh thing? He says in Proverbs 6, 19, the one who sows discontent, discord, division among the brethren. No matter how right or righteous they may be in their own mind. In James 3, it says this. The wisdom from above, it'll be evident in good works. Because there'll be a meekness of wisdom. In other words, you have power, but you don't use that power. But let all bitterness, let all... But if you have bitter envy, he says in James 3, 14, or self-seeking in your hearts, 
Don't boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing will be there. Well, very simple math. Jesus said every kingdom divided against itself, every house, every city divided against itself cannot stand. And that includes the church. Well, the right attitude to have is, is to just all of us to realize we have the capability to be Absalom. We all have the capability to be Saul. So let's just think about this just a second. Here's David. He used to be in the place of an Absalom. He was under authority to a king. Now, David rightly never said it, but if he did say it, I'm supposed to submit to an evil man. I mean, he did kill, Saul did murder the entire city of priests and many other wicked things. But David never said one ill word of Saul. But here's now Absalom in the place of David. He, and he's saying, my dad is, is not, shouldn't be king. I don't believe God wants David to be king. And I'm, I think God wants me to be king in his place because I can see where he's failing and I can correct that and I can be a better version of of what God wants a king to be. So David, you, you say, could David had rallied the troops? Yes, the army of Israel is behind David. What about Saul's family? His entire family, his best friend was Jonathan. He was married to his daughter. All of Saul's family loved David. What about the people? The people saying Saul killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. David was a hero. Had David said, hey, guys, we're done with this Saul stuff, everybody would have gone, yeah, <laughs> David's king, woo -hoo! He would have had a, a cheer. There would have been a great joy. But David didn't do that. David was in that place to be just like Absalom, to be embittered, to be disappointed, to be frustrated, to know that this king who's in power is not doing rightly. And David didn't become an Absalom. David as it says rightly in Acts, remained a man after God's own heart who did all his will. Well, now things have reversed. David is king. He's in the place of Saul. And now Absalom is there. So is David now going to be a Saul to Absalom? I mean, couldn't have David said, hey, don't touch the Lord's anointed. You can't touch God's anointed and not be found guiltless. Hey, God raises up. God brings down. What do you think you're doing? David never said a prideful word. He humbly just said, God, take care of it. But David didn't become a Saul. David, in the place of Saul, looked down at the guy under him, which is named Absalom. And Absalom could have been a David. Absalom could have said, my dad wasn't the dad he should have been. He, he's not been a king the way he should have been in a decade or two. And, and man, I just need to pray for him and encourage him and come alongside and just say, dad, is there anything I can? There's a lot of other attitudes he could have had. But Absalom became a Saul. A Saul 2.0. <laughs> but now David is being forced to become a Saul. But in that place... David, again, remains a David. How do we keep the heart of David, whether it's a Saul coming down on us or an Absalom trying to overthrow us? How do we keep our heart right? In Hebrews 12, it says, looking carefully, lest any of us fall short of the grace of God. What's he talking about? Pursue peace with all people and holiness lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and by this what? Many become defiled. Understand, guys, bitterness is a poison that spreads. It doesn't stay self-contained. And here's the foolishness people think. Okay, I'm bitter at my dad or my husband or my boss or whoever it is. And that's the only person I'll be bitter at. 
I'm only bitter at them because blah, 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 blah. And in the courtroom of our mind, we're the judge, we're the prosecutor, we're the jury, and we're like, yes, they're guilty, 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 and I'm so not guilty, I'm so righteous, I don't deserve this, you know, and, and, and it just keeps festering. But guess what? Now that you've allowed that thing to grow in your heart, you're going to start finding yourself bitter at a whole group of people. It, it, once you cross the line and have that spirit of criticalness, of fault-finding, in your, in your heart, you will find it now falling. You're looking through those glasses at the eyes of the rest of the world. And what happens is that person is in a poison and their spewing now causes others to have the same disease all around them. Be angry about when somebody's wrong. The Bible actually tells us, it commands us to be angry. There is definitely a righteous anger when unrighteousness has happened. And Absalom had a right to be angry at David for not dealing with Ammon and, and his raping of his sister Tamar. He had a right to, to, to be angry because he was ignored. David brought Absalom back. He was tricked into doing so, but he ignored him for years. He didn't see him. He didn't talk to him. Um, he completely ignored him. I, I don't know about you, but that, that's the number one thing that makes most people really angry. You know, yell at me, but don't act like you didn't hear me. That's, that's even worse, you know. So be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down in your wrath. Don't give that place for the devil. Don't let it fester. What do you do? You just bring it to light. You go to that person gently, lovingly, in kindness, not judgmental, not you, you, you. Just saying, this is how I've been affected. Pray for me. And, and you'll, you'll find that, that God will heal you. You know, when Job had been so put down by his friends, and, and when it all the dust settled, Job saw, these guys were from the pit of hell, my best friends that should have supported me, were like demonic in what they were saying about me. But what did God do? He said, Job, I'm going to heal you now, but here's how. Go lay hands on each of those guys and pray a blessing on them. <laughs> was it for them? <laughs> I think it was for Job and, and them. So, again, don't be the guy. Whatever it takes, don't be the Saul. Don't be the Absalom. You say, well, how do I get out of that? I don't know, but get out of that. Don't get in that rut. It's a hard rut to get out of. It's quicksand. Jesus says in Matthew 18, 7, there's always going to be offenses. People are going to be stumbled. There's nothing that we can do to stop that. But woe to that man by whom that offense comes. In Luke 17, I, I like the way he says, he says in, in verse 1, it's impossible that offenses should come, should not come. But woe to him through whom they do come. It'd be better for a millstone to be hung around his neck and to be thrown into the sea than to be that person who offended these little ones. Guys, make mistakes. Make all kinds of mistakes. Sin, struggle with sin. We all are going to. Offenses are going to come. Stumblings are going to come. But not this one. Don't be the divider. Don't be the critical spirit. Don't be the one that causes division and discord and contentions. Don't be that guy. Don't be the Saul. Don't be the Absalom, whatever it takes. Constantly ask God just to, to say, Lord, am I? Because I, I don't think Absalom could see himself in anything but a good light. I think when Absalom looked at himself in the mirror, he's like, man, I, my dad didn't judge my brother Ammon, but I put him to death the way my dad should have done. I'm such a righteous judge. <laughs> and then I humbly left the country to a foreign land till dad brought me back. And now he's not ignoring me, but, you know, I'm righteous, I'm righteous, I'm righteous. That's what he saw. But his heart was wicked. 
David in Psalms 139, verse 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my anxieties. See if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. Lord, help me see what I know I can't see on my own. Well, in 2 Samuel 15, 7, he says this, and it came to pass that after 40 years, now, there are some ancient manuscripts that say four years, and uh, Josephus makes a mention of that. So either Absalom was 40 years old when this came to a head, or he had been doing this for four years. And uh, I, I think it's four years. He's been doing it for four years. That Absalom said to the king, please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow to which I made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt at Geshur in Syria. Uh, and if the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I shall serve the Lord. And the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. So again, I, I think... You know, is he doing this for appearance? I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to go, you know, keep my vow. Is he just lying to David and trying to keep up appearances in this charade? I don't think so. I've dealt with these kind of guys through the last 32 years I've been pastoring. And they really do see themselves as the ultimate worshipers. They, they really do see themselves with this keen insight into God's heart and God's will. They, they are like hyper-spiritual, hearing from God like nobody else is hearing from God, seeing things that nobody else can observe. And in this hyper-place of spirituality, they, they just see themselves as pure and, and, and sincere and right. And... Of course, why is he going to Hebron? The tabernacle's right there outside David's back door. Why isn't he where the Ark of the Covenant is and the priests are? Hebron, Hebron is the place where kings get anointed. It was pretty suspect. But David, again, it says, don't judge anything before the time. I, I can't look at Absalom's heart and say he's going to do a coup against me. I, I can't see that. I can't, what all I see is a guy saying he wants to keep his vow and worship the Lord. Until something other comes out, I can't judge it. And, and David didn't. But yet, the Bible does clearly show that during this time, Absalom had a very wicked heart. He was not walking in the will of God. So whatever sense of worship he was experiencing, it was generated from himself or from the devil. It wasn't something God enjoyed and received. And so that, that's sort of, a, again, sort of a heavy point to make. But again, it, it's, it's a part of the deception. You know, I, I think of that this example again was Lucifer towards God, seeing him like, I'm basically more spiritual than you. <laughs> I, I could basically be a better God than you are. And I, I, I just don't see why you can't see that God and make me equal to you. But if you're not going to do that, I'll have to take it in my own hands and make it happen. I, the same thing with Moses. It tells us that he was the humblest man on earth. And talking about somebody who did not want to be in leadership, I think he takes the cake. <laughs> you're going to be a leader. No, I'm not. You're going to be a leader. Take Aaron. You're going to go to Egypt. No, I'm not. I'm just a simple little uh, shepherd out in the middle of nowhere. I'm 80 years old. Leave me alone. Well, he goes. And he's taking these children out of Egypt. And it just keeps their rebellious hearts. But it finally culminates in, in Numbers chapter 16. Where Moses and Aaron are standing there. And their nephews, Dathan and Abraham and Korah, come up to them and say, why do you lift yourself up above us? And this is what they say. Don't you see that all God's people are holy? All God's people can prophesy. All God's people can hear equally from God. And you're lifting yourself up like you alone hear God. And then they just start accusing them of, of getting rich on them and oppressing them and lying to them about the land flowing with milk and honey. We're out in this stinking desert of Sinai. 
you've not done anything you said you're going to do. And, and Moses just says, guys, don't go there. Rejoice. God's made you priest of his people. You, you can't be lifted up any higher than that to be the spiritual leaders of Israel. Stop this. Rejoice. None of what you're saying is true. Just, and they're just like, no. And Moses said, okay, then we'll go before God and burn incense. And they believed that their spiritual worship would be greater than Moses' spiritual worship. And they came out there and they're burning their incense and worshiping God. And God opens up the earth and swallows these guys right down into hell. It's, it just it blows my mind that here's the humblest man on earth. But yet they can only see this prideful, arrogant guy who's lording it over them. What I'm trying to point out is their heart. It, it wasn't Moses. Not that, you know, in, in the case with God, and they came with Moses, they, they had nowhere to hang their hat. With a lot of other leaders like David and Paul, and they, they had legitimate reasons to say, you know, here's why we're against you. But understand, even if they didn't have legitimate reasons, they would still do it because that's what's in their heart. Well, in verse 10, Absalom sets up this situation where he plants people all over Israel to shout, Absalom is king at an appointed time when the trumpet blasts. And Absalom invites all these unsuspecting leaders in Israel to come to Hebron. They think it's just a worship. But when everybody starts screaming by the thousand Absalom's king, they're like, either I also say this or I get murdered, <laughs> you know? So they didn't support him, but they didn't say anything. They kept silent. And let me tell you something, guys. Keeping silent, the sin of omission, is just as great or even greater in sometimes of the sin of commission. By these guys being silent, even though it might cost them their life, was a sin. But then who's the guy who's standing up uh, representing Absalom more than anybody, this guy by the name of Ahithophel. Now understand, there is no leader like Ahithophel in Israel. We're going to learn later that every time the guy spoke, it was as if God were speaking. And he never failed. He had wisdom and just never failed. He was a uniquely anointed guy. We're going to find out he was David's best friend. We're going to do a whole sermon on him in chapter 17. But here's the thing. Guess who Ahithophel's granddaughter was? Bathsheba. So David and him are best friends and he sins against Ahithophel by committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering his grandson, Uriah. And Ahithophel just leaves Jerusalem and goes out and lives in the country. But yet he's out there in his bitterness. And we're going to see that it gets really wicked. But let me tell you what, I do not think Absalom would have had success to the degree he had success without Ahithophel. I think Ahithophel was a key, key puzzle. And so evidently, Absalom in these four years is going out and talking to Ahithophel and Birds of a feather flock together. Absalom's bitter, Hithophel's bitter, and they start feeding on one another until they come up with this plan to overthrow David and make himself king. Back in verse 6, it tells us that Absalom had this four-year plan to steal the hearts of Israel away from them, away from David, and in verse 13, it tells us he did that. The messengers came to David and said, you didn't see it, David, but the whole time, Underneath, quietly subverted with special meetings and secret councils and groups of guys that look like, you know, the Kiwanis Club or whatever. Um, Absalom has basically the majority of the population against you and for him. Well, interesting in verse 14, David immediately knew if Absalom is going to promote himself, 
just like it says in James 3, where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So what's he say to people? Well, let's see if we can talk to them. Let's see if we can have a meeting. Let's see if we can reason together. Is that what David does? He says, guys, run. <laughs> no one's going to escape until he completely destroys us. Disaster comes. He'll burn the city down. He'll kill everybody that's not for him because that's the kind of heart such a person has. And David immediately knew. Absalom is promoting himself. Run. Because there's no end to the wickedness he'll bring upon us. Well, in verse 15, I love this because the people start coming and they says, the king's servant said to the king, um, we're going to do as the king commands. And the king went forth out of his household and the king left 10 of his concubines to keep the house. And the king went out uh, with the people and if you look in verses 15, 16, 17, 18, seven times the word king is used. It's as if the Holy Spirit is saying, David, even though you may not be in Jerusalem, even though you may not be on the throne, you are still God's king, even if you're out in a tent in the wilderness, because God has raised you up. And even though it may be getting waffled here for a minute, even though things maybe get shaken, you are as firmly the king as if you were in Jerusalem on the throne from God's point of view. Again, David later writes in the Psalms, in Psalm 75, 6 and 7, he says, exaltation doesn't come from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is judge, and he puts down one and exalts another. Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, after he became like an animal for seven years, he came back to his senses and he just started praising God. And he just said, God, man is as nothing before you. Your dominion is everlasting. And you can humble anybody you want, whoever that person is on earth, anytime you want, any way you want. You don't need man's interference to help you raise up and bring down. And then we see only 600 David's original mighty men. And then a handful of Gentiles. The Sherathites, the Pelethites, who were David's personal bodyguards, and the Gittites, those are the only people that followed David. Interesting, isn't it? Later, Solomon would write in Proverbs 20, verse 6, Most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? Every man will proclaim himself faithful and loyal and committed until it cost him something. You see, you don't, you don't find who your true friends are in peacetime. You find only who your true friends are in difficult times, in hardship, in war. Because for them to be your friend and associate with you could cost them dearly. We see this in a guy by the name of Ittai, the Gittai. <laughs> and he comes out with David with his whole family with him. And David says, I don't know you. I just met you yesterday. We've known each other a few hours. But yet, seeing David's character, his person, seeing God uniquely upon David's life, he said, I am with you unto death. If you live, then me and my whole family live. If you die, me and my whole family die. Wow. A powerful, powerful heart of friendship and loyalty from a guy who just just spoke of David. He did it publicly, and he did it completely volunteered. And in verse 23, so all the people go weeping with David that are going with him over the book Kidron, up the Mount of Olives. Just for you Bible scholars, this is the first time the word Kidron is ever mentioned in the Bible. David is a picture of Christ. The last time we'll see this is Jesus in John 18 crossing over the Kidron to the Garden of Gethsemane. But here, David, uh, just as one day, Jesus would be rejected by all of Israel. Crucify him, crucify him. His apostles denouncing him and fleeing from him and one of them betraying him. Jesus, the son of David would one day experience on this same trail exactly what 
his father previously, David, had experienced in a greater, greater form. Well, in verse 24 to 30, the priests stand with David, and, and they say, David, we are with you, and we're bringing the ark, so where the presence of God is, that's where you're going to be, and you're going to be with the presence of God, and David says, take it back. Maybe, maybe God is judging me. I, this is interesting here. In verse 26, David says, you know what? It's, it's a possibility that God is, even though this is unrighteous and Absalom's thing won't stand, maybe it is God just punishing me. David is depressed. This wasn't true. This wasn't right. But David writes Psalm 3, Psalm 41, Psalm 55, Psalm 61, Psalm 62, Psalm 63 in these few days why he is away uh, from the throne fleeing from Absalom. Well, David prays a prayer against Ahithophel and says, God, let all his counsel seem as foolishness to Absalom and his guys. And that's exactly what God did. He, Ahithophel came in chapter 17, we're going to see, and gave his counsel, and they rejected it. And they took another guy by the name of Hushi's counsel. And then in verse 32, David now weeping goes to the top of the mountain. I mean, understand, guys, he's in a miserable place. He is hurt by his own son betraying him. He is devastated by guys like Ahithophel who have become traitors. He knows this isn't the will of God, but yet the whole country is being divided over this. And what does he do? Oh, I would worship God, but I just don't feel like it today. <laughs> isn't that what a lot of us would do? I think we really got worship backwards. Number one, worship is not singing, guys. It is one tiny aspect of worship. Worship is, is seeking God, praying, yes, singing songs, fellowship, laying hands on one another, anointing with oil, receiving communion, serving one another, hugging each other, praying for one another. All of this is worship. Did David go to the top of the mountain and, and whip out his lyre and start singing songs? I think that's what people think, but I don't think that's what happened. I think he just fell on his face and just started crying out and seeking God in his heart, in his mind. And then he started writing down these psalms as the Lord was giving them to him as he started journaling. Well, but it's interesting that I guarantee you he did not feel like worshiping God. But why did he? Because God was worthy. And then the final part of the story today is this guy, Hushi, who was sort of on the fringe, I guess, with David. He says, you, you came out with me? Go back. You're a guy that Absalom would believe you're on the fringe. You could go either way. You could support me or support him. And boy, if you supported him and he is successful, you would get raised up. So therefore, he would believe that you would betray me. Go back. And Hushi went back and was one of his top counselors along with Ahithophel. But he was a double agent. You know, it's interesting that we see in these last few verses, David spiritually worshiping, but also being wise as a serpent. Jesus says this. He says, therefore be wise as a serpent, but gentle uh, and harmless as a dove. Jesus said in Luke 16, why can't the sons of light be as shrewd as the sons of darkness? And so David is, is being a, a good general here in the middle of a, a weird warfare. Well, as we end this chapter this morning, we just want to come to that place to say, Lord, search my heart. Mm, let's just pray here a minute together. Lord, search my heart. God, you said that through your word, you would wash us in the water of the word. You said you would send out your word and heal us. There's no doubt in my mind right now. There's some people here that Satan is trying to form into a Saul, form into an Absalom. There's some amazing godly people like Ahithophel here that you would never in a zillion, gazillion years think that they could become so wicked. A man who always spoke perfect wisdom, a godly man who was David's best friend, who worshiped with him in the house of God, but yet now he's being used by the devil 
in a perverted way. Lord, we know that you're saying to us today, be careful if we think we stand, lest we fall. And right here today, if you have that, that little bit of anger, but it's turning into sin, and you're wrestling with it, and you're getting tired, you just want to ignore it and forget about it, and you say, Lord, help me. Help me, Lord. Search my heart right now, God. Get that seed of bitterness out, Lord. Help me by your grace to see as you did on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Lord, help us, Lord. Help us, Jesus. Mm. That's you right now. Just cry out, God, cleanse me from bitterness. Cleanse me from not being that submitted spirit, not being that humble spirit that you're, you're opposed to, but be a humble spirit where you can lift us up. We just right now, Lord, as we've come humbly here today and we, we have worked in worship, we have worked in the worship of studying your word, line upon line, precept upon precept. This is a labor of love being here today. Many of those who are teaching in Sunday school and teaching the classes and serving the food, they're laboring because they, they believe that what's happening here right now is so important. Lord, don't just let us hear and then walk out of here forgetting the very thing we heard. We know you've come to meet us and where we're in the word is where we are. So right now, Lord, heal us, Lord. We're just going to close with a song. Just stand and let's just sing it and just ask God just to heal our hearts and strengthen the body of Christ, strengthen the families, strengthen all our hearts to be clear in this matter.